Hello, and welcome to another edition of Kaleidoscope. This is Magda Zenon recording from Nicosia, and with me via Zoom, I have Oksana Potapova. Welcome, Oksana. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Oksana is a woman peace and security uh, researcher and activist, and Oksana is also a Ukrainian nomad at the stage because Oksana was forced to leave Ukraine when the during the invasion of by Russia, which started on the twenty fourth of February. So we are entering the third month or the fourth month. Actually, so we're entering the, third month. Uh, the eighth year, um, which uh, right. important to mark as well. I think for the world, the the big invasion started in February twenty twenty two. But as someone who comes from uh, the region of Donbass in uh, eastern Ukraine. I and my family, uh, along with almost two million displaced communities, have been experiencing uh, this uh, uh, Russia's uh, imperial militarist uh, uh, game uh, since 2014, um, which resulted in um, uh, annexation of Crimea and uh, the creation of uh, unrecognized uh, territories, so-called republics. In, uh, I think Ukraine. that's a mistake a lot of us make that we assume that it only started in February and we seem to forget or conveniently forget the fact that this didn't start now. It has a history since 2014. So thank you for correcting me and reminding me. <laughs> okay, um, but this, this time you left, why? Um, I left because, uh, well, it's interesting. Uh, I had returned to Ukraine uh, not uh, long before uh, the invasion um, of, after finishing a master's degree in, uh, in the UK. And uh, when I was returning, there was a lot of news already of possible invasions and everyone was uh, anticipating that even if something would start, it would start in the East where my family lives. Uh, my parents are there and we were planning uh, their evacuation uh, in case of uh, rising insecurities. Um, but uh, at the same time, uh, it, this is also important to, to say, um, for a month at least uh, before the invasion happened, the whole country lived in a sense of insecurity. We were getting news um, instructions on how to pack an emergency bag, uh, how to know where a bomb shelter in your house uh, is located. And we were in this state of unknowing so I did have a backpack uh, in my room ready to, uh, for, to, you know, to survive on for, for three days or for a week with you know, basic food and a set of clothing and matches and medication. Uh, uh, the, tanks, the Russian tanks were parking on the border. You had the signs there. Of course. Uh, however, we all thought it was just a military parade, you know, like a, like a theater of war where uh, different sides show their strength and power as a way of maybe bargaining something uh, in the international um, negotiations and that it would be insane to actually act on, on these threats. But uh, I woke up on the 24th, uh, 22nd of February at 5 a.m. from a sound of explosion. I didn't see anything, but um, there was an attack on an airport and not far from Kiev, which woke up um, um, most of us in the city. And uh, as soon as I woke up, I had a really strong sense of clarity uh, that the war has started. I had no doubt about what happened. And, uh, and I also knew that uh, I mentally, I wasn't ready to 
to stay in the city that is under attack. Um, and uh, I spent another day in Kyiv watching the news. Um, uh, the news were uh, quickly uh, saying that they are in fact going to try to attack the capital city as uh, the goal was to take over uh, the government and to instill a new leader of Ukraine um, swiftly. Uh, again, something none of us had in mind as a real strategy. Uh, but then I just uh, thought this is going to be over soon. And while it's happening, I will, uh, you know, wait it out uh, uh, somewhere else in a safer area for a week or two. And now it's been two and a half months since I hadn't been back. Uh, tell me, uh, this becoming a refugee, although you did move legally, I think that only could, did you, you could leave the city legally, the country legally, or did you live leave by no, borders? Uh, and that's uh, that's part of uh, I think uh, <clears throat> privileged situation uh, and our geographic situation as well. Uh, one of the things I had been carrying my international passport with me for the last uh, for the two weeks prior to the invasion as well, just in my little pouch. Uh, pocket. So when I left, uh, I had my backpack with, you know, two sets of change of clothes and my international passport, even though I, the plan was not to go abroad immediately, but I did end up going to Romania first, where friends were offering to host me, um, and then to Germany, uh, eventually. So uh, Ukraine has a visa-free regime with the EU, which allows us to enter uh, without any visas and be there for three months as tourists. And that is what uh, many people were doing, even though those uh, who don't have international passports were also allowed to cross. So we saw an unprecedented um, loosening of the documentation regime for uh, Ukrainians uh, fleeing the country. Although I must say uh, it did not unfortunately look as equal for people who were inside Ukraine but were not Ukrainians, um, like a lot of international students uh, who were studying in uh, Kharkiv, in Sumy, in many cities, uh, in fact, that host uh, a lot of international students. We all already know about accounts of them being held at uh, Polish uh, uh, border, and hung uh, Hungarian border and other states based on the claims that uh, they don't have Ukrainian passports, they don't look uh, Slavic and white, and uh, therefore, you know, they deserve a different treatment, which I think is outrageous and uh, doesn't is not something that, that fits into my mind, uh, but unfortunately, it also reveals to us how the system works and how- I think this is, I spoke to an Afghan woman, an Afghan refugee, mm -hmm. and the question of what happens with identification documents and how you're viewed, especially with Afghans, which is current now, is so stark. And I don't think we that live in the safety of a democratic safe country for the moment, mm -hmm. we don't realize what it actually does and what it actually means. I think that there are a lot of Afghans that left the, the country in panic and are stuck in Pakistan without ID documents. How do you move? Or they exactly. don't have ID documents. They weren't, they weren't allowed to be issued passports. So this issue of having to move suddenly at a moment's notice, I don't think we understand it until we actually face it ourselves. Absolutely. And uh, the kind of decision that, that you make within hours of uh, where to go and uh, knowing that you may not return for a long time, not knowing when you'll be able to return, um, is also, I don't think, something that uh, is even possible to fully understand. 
I uh, was writing quite a lot at the beginning of uh, this journey. And uh, one of the accounts on my social media is the story of how I was making that decision inside me, you know, and what were my options. Um, one of the reasons I thought it would be uh, good for me to leave Ukraine is uh, because I am quite active and visible on social media and I'm known as an activist. And we know from uh, following Russian politics in Russia, but also in territories that are currently under Russian control, that uh, activists are the first um, under attack, Targets. under uh, imprisonment, torture, abduction, and disappearance. And we had no idea how this would unfold. And I, um, it was very difficult for me to imagine a situation where I, I would be just, you know, stuck and unable to leave and uh, possibly disappear. Another reason was I knew that the the regions of Ukraine, which are relatively safe, would be over flooded very soon with people. And um, in a way, I didn't want to kind of burden the infrastructure if uh, I had all the capacities and the potential to be elsewhere. Uh, I speak English. I have friends who were willing to host me. So I thought I wouldn't I don't want to be taking somebody else's place um, in Lviv or somewhere else. Um, and um, but you're right, there are uh, people uh, also in Ukraine who fled Afghanistan and who stayed in Ukraine as their uh, new home. And uh, then they were on the move uh, again and um, into different places. Um, but uh, I think uh, this shows us this very mixed nature of migration and war migration and how indeed uh, it doesn't know borders to the extent that we we try to build them and, and maintain them. And there's no logic. A lot of the time, it's not just the migration. Well, I'm deciding to leave, or like after the First World War, when Europe was Second World War, where Europe was destroyed, there was a conscious decision to migrate to America, to the UK, to Africa, to Australia. This is not a conscious decision. This is a forced decision, and I think that's what. Um, people don't understand that it's not mm -hmm. a decision of choice. It's not a decision. Exactly. Yeah. It's a no option decision. Absolutely. And um, the thing is, like, for me, it was a little bit easier in a way because, like I said, I had just returned from a master's degree and I, I just lived through an experience of moving to another country, of having to find accommodation to settle, to discover the new, you know, where the supermarkets are. Uh, but then uh, I was observing myself when I had to do the same again in Germany, uh, where I'm based now, and how much resistance I had inside me of looking for apartments, uh, looking for places to, to stay. And I, it took me a while to realize that the resistance was connected to the fact that I didn't choose it. I didn't uh, plan it. It was not part of my desire a will to to make that choice um, and a lot of my colleagues uh, were also experiencing that and we had to overcome this and come to a peace with ourselves like I'm here for some time and even though I didn't choose it now I can choose to make the most of it and um, uh, yeah uh, I think it's very simplistic that uh, a lot of times um, migrants that end up in uh, safer European context are seen as those who just want the benefits, they are just there for the good life and uh, jobs. Uh, exactly while uh, it's it's never simply that uh, plus most of us um, 
stay very connected to our families and homes, to the news. Uh, we are glued to our phones and uh, to the news, and we send most money of the to most our of families. you migrants yeah. of conflict migrants, but actually prefer to have remained at home. It's as simple as that, Absolutely. and no one really understands Absolutely. that, and that's not an option. That's why they're leaving. As it's, it's very simplistic that people think it's well, they're going to take take away my jobs or they want whatever. It's as if they've chosen to come to this wonderful cross through whatever, and they've chosen to come here. So, but as you said, you've you've all all of you have now decided, or the many of you have decided that this is at least temporary home, and you mm -hmm. need to make the best of it. So let's get to what I asked you before we started this recording. How do you recruit? Because you are active and there are a lot of Ukrainian women activists that are um, active and proactive and visible online and doing mm -hmm. awesome. How do you reconnect? Is it easy to reconnect? Um, I think we're still starting to, we're just starting to, to do that. Uh, the first two months were really uh, the time for everyone to focus on, on their safety. And um, uh, some of us indeed uh, also came outside of Ukraine to different uh, countries in Europe, bringing their children, uh, in some cases, the elderly as well. Um, I think, again, the media has this a little bit uh, one-sided picture of a mother and a small child, while uh, we understand that women um, take out, um, out of the country also their parents uh, yes. sometimes, uh, especially those who need care and assistance. Um, they look for countries where their parents can continue to receive health care in, in case of chronic illnesses. One of my colleagues has a mother who is recovering from cancer, for example, and she's her choice of where to stay and how long is also very connected to the infrastructure that uh, that her mother requires. And uh, so all of those things happen at the same time as we are trying to find our role and uh, our new political agency or renewed political agency. Uh, I would say that um, COVID has been a blessing in disguise for us in that way because we have learned to organize online uh, exactly. in the past two years and we we hadn't had uh, so many in-person meetings even inside ukraine and we are used to uh, assembling uh, in calls uh, zoom conferences but also knowing that um, um, because i was involved uh, in ukraine in uh, the work that that connected activists across different regions um, but also across the border of these uh, unrecognized uh, republics that I had uh, been had mentioned in the beginning, and um, it wasn't even always uh, safe for us to meet inside Ukraine, and uh, our larger assemblies happened in Istanbul or in Tbilisi, um, and that was kind of a common uh, practice. Of course, this would require support of some international partners, um, and uh, I think. So Zoom kept you safe. In fact, in a way, it kept us connected. It kept us connected for sure. And in the first uh, month, definitely, uh, we were all in touch very actively. And those of us who had access to uh, and information about emergency funding and resources like the Urgent Action Fund for Women's Rights, for example, we were really working a day and night to uh, apply, to send uh, applications to people and say, you know, you can get the money here really fast the money that you need, don't be shy, ask for it. And just uh, um, even research shows that that cash uh, assistance to Ukraine uh, has been the main way of supporting 
Ukrainians in the first month um, with difficulties of accessing funds. So that was um, our main main uh, task. And now we're thinking more about advocacy and um, this is where I think the role of international partners has been quite important. Uh, even in the first month, uh, I was personally contacted by uh, Wilp and Kvinatilkvina, for example, uh, asking both to, you know, if I want to share something, but also they um, organized uh, several meetings with um, uh, myself and other Ukrainian activists where they opened uh, spaces to politicians um, for, uh, to listen to us. And as one of the results of, of such meeting is um, a uh, um, EU parliament uh, declaration that was already passed uh, last week that's and that's integrated right. a lot of the comments of Ukrainian activists, uh, both regarding support to migrants, uh, support to women surviving sexual violence and accessing reproductive health um, and services in Poland and in other parts of the EU, which, as you can imagine, may be a challenge. So that was also very unexpected positive result of us uh, saying, okay, you know, this is how you could adapt and adjust. And this is what we see as necessary from our reality. And uh, uh, yeah, it had an effect. I think this has also got to do with the fact that we, within the last five years, a lot of women peace builder networks have been developing. Exactly. Yeah. Which has um, been assisted by Zoom because you yeah. don't travel. It's mm -hmm. very easy to just press a button. Yeah. So I think this, um, for want of another word, this building of a strong global sisterhood has Absolutely. played a very important role in the fact that Wolf reached out to you or reaches out to Eva because yeah. one of the oldest women's organizations, but it certainly makes it easier because everyone is connected in some way. How did we meet? We met in some random workshop about a year ago, reconnected through Wolf. No, three, reconnected at the OCSE um, network that they, they built, they brought, and then we can, so these networks are actually bringing women together. Absolutely. From you know, different and areas, and you don't know where you're going to find a solution. Exactly. Somewhere someone's going to appear that can offer you a solution or is a reference to a solution. Yeah. If I had, uh, you know, uh, to write a proposal um, to donors on why uh, it's important to support feminist networks uh, and why flexible, uh, unrestricted funding is necessary, I would give them the example of uh, what is happening now with and around Ukraine, not only inside Ukraine, right? Uh, which is exactly what you outlined. And um, I have uh, two really beautiful quotes uh, to share about this. One is uh, uh, by an activist who is now inside Ukraine. She's in Lviv and uh, uh, she runs a social enterprise of um, uh, selling sustainable clothing. And as soon as the war broke out, uh, they turned into basically a humanitarian shop providing assistance with clothing to the internally displaced people. And she said, uh, as an activist, I, I was never uh, strong on money and we were never good on uh, making good salaries as we all <laughs> understand. But she said, I feel like my connections have been my best investment because I, uh, you know, I can get almost anything I need instantaneously within 24 hours if I make an appeal or a call to my volunteer networks. And that has really been a huge, a huge strength um, inside Ukraine and a testimony to a really strong civil society, but also just volunteer networks. And another I think it's also a testament to 
we always hear when they're doing making big decisions or going to peace settlements, yeah. say there are no women. Why haven't you put women? There are no women. It's a real testament to how many bloody awesome women there are around. And women at every level, whether it's at the policy building level, at the grassroots level, at supporting at the humanitarian level, there are women at every single level within society, whether it's at a, in a peaceful time or whether it's in a conflict time. And mm-hmm. real testament of how much women can get done because during conflict, it's mainly the women that have supported each other or have found a way to support the displaced or the internally displaced or the people on the move. So I agree with you. We, re- we really yeah. need to make this idea or maybe find a pro- not a project, a way to promote it more. Absolutely. And I think it also justifies to the importance of um, relationship building, which is also such like a, non, uh, a non-masculine uh, indicator, you know, it's process-oriented, it's, it's very feminist. Uh, you, you go for a coffee here and there, you know, you and I, we meet and chat uh, over Zoom, but we invest in, in connection with each other, we get to know about each other, and uh, we don't know how and when this connection will be a resource for us and for Absolutely. our communities. And uh, there is a, a great report actually by uh, Swiss piece uh, where they actually do a research on looking how at the informal work that women are doing um, in conflict context, uh, providing care and providing this informal relationship building, emotional support to each other, and how much that is um, an essential part of, of building peace and security in communities and how it needs to be recognized. Um, People love it because yeah. I'll, come, I'll go to a meeting and I'll be the only one that'll come back and say, you know what? Oh, she's married with three children and she does this job or she's got a holiday home. She likes traveling. And people said to me, but why did you find out this information? And to me, this is part of relationship building because I don't know about your life to gossip. I want to know about your life to give you dimension. Yeah. It's not just a face on the screen or someone's opposite. I want to know if you're married, not for no other reason than to know the context where you're coming from. Of course, because that's what that's what makes us human. That's what makes us uh, um, connect. And um, it, I think for me, this is what an embodied intersectionality also means. We talk about it so much in theory, but we are complex. And as women, even we are not a homogenous group. And uh, um, sometimes we can bounce off uh, each other's hobbies or a common experience of, of being in certain place. And that can start a, a conversation and uh, a project or um, an idea collaboration can, can come out of it. Um, yeah, so, um, and again, I think this is just something that um, isn't uh, as much part of the bigger politics, unfortunately, maybe because there is no time for it or it, everyone is too serious for, for those kinds of things. Uh, I wonder what it means to design and shape new politics with uh, this relational aspect in mind. Well, I think I don't think I think there should be time for it because I think that is what makes successful politics when you're mm-hmm. not just actually focused on an agenda that is totally one-dimensional, has no soul, and is probably not answering the needs and opportunities for the yeah. people it's designed to be implemented on. So yeah. I think we need to make time for that relationship building, but not that one over a drink between meetings. Only. This is yeah. 
this is another part of my identity, which uh, we were talking in the beginning, is that I spent quite a lot of time working with community theater and uh, as, in, as part of the Theater for Dialogue organization uh, in Ukraine. And uh, what uh, it would to me, it was never just about, you know, happy clappy, uh, we do something for fun and it looks good on photos. It was very political work, but also very personal work. It's where for me the personal became the political. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it was uh, a space where we uh, invited women who were uh, affected by conflict or in Ukraine or who were involved in activism on the local level to really share um, stories of, of their experience of security, insecurity, to use their bodies, to use aesthetics, um, to express those um, feelings and stories and to connect uh, to each other on, on that uh, really human level as mothers, as daughters, as women, as activists. And- um, I think uh, we need to speak yeah. about this because I love this idea of, yeah. we just did, a because I'm also a member of the Women Mediators across the Commonwealth. We mm -hmm. just shared project, project in Cyprus with a woman from Northern Ireland um, mm -hmm. with beads. Okay. Beads. And the, the, the woman that led the project put us into a meditation for about five minutes, starting us from a happy space and speaking through us through our um, stages in our lives. She stopped the meditation and before us was a table full of beads of different shapes, colors, sizes, and textures. Mm -hmm. And she gave us a string and said, create your life now. And it was such a journey to go through and see how people, the colors people chose or what they chose the colors for or how they see textures and sizes. Mm -hmm. And something that might appear to someone who's never done it quite um, superficial turned out to be so, so meaningful because in explaining each of the ladies present had to explain what each bead meant. And in telling the people around you what each bead meant and why it meant what it meant. It's, exactly. a, um, yeah. it's a sharing, it's a deep sharing. Firstly, it, it gets it off your chest, which means it's a relief for you. But it's such a deep sharing that there's a community created almost. It was, I mean, we went in Absolutely. with a half, yeah. we went in not sure what to believe, not what to expect. And we came out of, we did this in with two groups of about eight people because a smaller group, you know, works better, eight or 10. Mm -hmm. And we both, the four of us that had been part of the, um, that were leading the, so inspired, so, so inspired about how much it brought out, how much the space allowed people to spoke about what the conflict meant to them. Yeah. I think that, uh, and to me, that uh, storytelling aspect, even though now I am uh, more involved in research and advocacy, I never let go of that aspect of trying to bring in uh, human stories, these uh, three-dimensional experiences um, and emotions into the space. Um, because I think a lot of the times that's what, um, that's what maybe even starts wars. You know, we, we forget about uh, the human aspect of, uh, the consequences, um, uh, not we, but those who make decisions and, and who rarely actually experience the, the effects of those decisions on Absolutely. themselves or even on their families. Um, but it's, uh, you know, the lived experiences of their people uh, who then suffer. Um, so it, 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 this is kind of uh, why I started in a way connecting gender work and peace work at certain point, because I was seeing 
the connection between between this uh, binary that that gender norms reinforce you know how uh, something that is masculine is, is is serious and respected, but also very unemotional and very disattached and very um, rational. And feminine is, um, uh, you know, empathetic, uh, supportive, but also sidelined and uh, not taken seriously. And and that is the basis of of the world we live in. And I think it's part of. Um, violence that, that we keep reproducing is the people we expect to make decisions and to take responsibility are the people who are taught uh, not to feel, exactly. and not to empathize, and we don't associate power with empathy, um, power with um, connection. Yes, we don't associate power with tears. Exactly. Tell me, tell me you, were in a, you were on a panel yesterday and on reading your reflections about it, you said it's the first time you felt that that the female or the gender discourse was at the center and it wasn't marginalized. And you felt effective and seen and heard. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't the first time um, uh, in general, because of course I've been to feminist spaces. Um, I think, um, yes, yesterday I took part in uh, a debate um, that was organized by um, Ukrainian uh, gender scholar Irina Zhirobkina and uh, Judith Butler as uh, co-organizers uh, as a way of expressing transnational solidarity with Ukrainian feminists. And the focus was on transnational, um, but also on um, giving voice uh, to um, researchers, academics and activists uh, from Ukraine. And I think this experience was different um, compared to uh, previous couple of months where we have seen a lot of efforts by the Western um, leftist and feminist scholars to provide their analysis of how the war in Ukraine should end. And many of them um, resisting the idea for um, armed support to Ukraine or for the fact that Ukraine needs to fight uh, for, for this uh, in this war um, and it came as a big disappointment to many uh, of my colleagues and to myself where we saw that our feminist sisters uh, who together with us criticized militarization were not able to see the nuance of our situation and how much this is a war of imperial invasion and uh, the power imbalance behind this invasion uh, it doesn't leave us a choice but but to resist which is also a very feminist act and uh, I think many of us were uh, appre apprehensive of uh, coming to a similar space uh, where, of course... Uh, Especially with a name like Judith Butler. Of course, of course, <laughs> you know, where we are not used to being uh, seen and recognized on such level. And uh, I wrote myself that I carry this internal uh, hierarchy inside me. Of course, it, it reproduces itself. And so watching that uh, this space actually turned into an opportunity for our voices and voices of our Polish, uh, Czech, Serbian colleagues and colleagues from other parts of the world to come to the forefront was really, really beautiful. I, only at the end, I realized, oh, uh, Judith Butler didn't actually say much. So they opened uh, the floor briefly and then closed the event. Um, but And they were there with, uh, with us in, in comments in the chat, but it wasn't about them and, 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 and their opinion. It was about, uh, look, you know, we are in solidarity, we're together, let's listen. And um, yeah, I truly think this is one of the most uh, 
feminist things we can do. And I'm learning from this because I know I have more power than, than other colleagues as well in some contexts. And I ask myself, uh, uh, am I able to do the same when, uh, when I acknowledge that I don't know enough about the context? I'm outside of Ukraine now. I haven't been there for two months. There's a lot that happened. Um, what does it mean for me to create a space where I listen and not just try to talk or you know, explain to my Ukrainian colleagues how they should be dealing with war uh, on the ground? Uh, so it's, um, it felt like a, an important shift for, for many of us um, yesterday, not just Ukrainians, yeah. And was there any, were there any decisions made at the end? Did you come to any conclusions? Because I'm assuming it was a conversation about solidarity and how, what support can be given and is needed. It wasn't so much of a decision. It was a, a series of statements made by uh, um, both Ukrainian um, colleagues and um, expressions of solidarity and reflection uh, from colleagues internationally. Uh, some of the ideas that came through uh, was to, first of all, bring together all of these uh, uh, short statements, maybe in a joint publication to make them visible and to um, help the world see this uh, tapestry. There was also a call for uh, funding financial support to a queer initiative in Kharkiv, a feminist um, organizations fear uh, which I know also very well, and I uh, give all of my support to them. They have been there uh, throughout all of this, and Kharkiv has been attacked uh, heaviest. Um, and uh, we started discussing a possibility of an in-person workshop where, uh, you know, a more in-depth exploration of these ideas could come to place. Um, but I don't know if and when uh, this will happen. Um, yeah, I think it was a very instantaneous uh, moment which may emerge into something bigger, but uh, that's also yet to be seen. Yes. Anyway, a lot of spontaneous decisions are made and not all of them become reality. Some of them do, but that's that's the way things are. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to share with us? I mean, there's a lot we can say. How are you feeling about what's happening now? What do you, Where do you think this conflict is going? Is it going to carry on for long, do you believe? I know the Ukrainians have got a very um, long-standing tradition of resistance, mm -hmm. and they're badass. I mean, they don't do it. This is, the, this is who they are. So mm -hmm. how long do you believe this is going to carry on? I hope not very long, but how long do you believe yeah. Yeah. Well, this is actually, uh, I, I can provide some of my reflections, which uh, are in no way like, you know, expert research opinion, but also uh, I would come back with a question to you at the end as someone who, who has worked and lived in a protracted conflict uh, for, for years. Um, as I think um, also important to understand uh, as an experience from within, uh, when a violent war of this scale begins, very uh, few people actually expect it to last very long. Uh, it's uh, those who are displaced or those who stay. So um, the expectations that this will end soon uh, are always there. At the same time, now we already understand that this may take some time. We don't know how long because we're seeing that the Russian side isn't very constructive in whatever negotiation process that that is happening um what 
is giving us hope is uh, the fact that for the time being, uh, the global leaders have decided to provide arms to Ukraine, um, which in my hope would allow us to at least push back uh, the Russian military to a safer you know, land where we, um, we would be able to have our territories back. What the agreement will look like and when it happens, we don't know. So I would say um, many people inside and outside Ukraine are preparing for a longer term. Those who are looking for homes uh, are settling for at least a year and um, with possibilities of swift returns uh, back. Um, for me right now, the big question is um, what this means for women's rights and for feminism. Um, both in Ukraine and internationally. Uh, events like yesterday and other um, are important and they bring us to a new level of, of reflection and solidarity. While at the same time, of course, we are seeing already a huge impact um, uh, of this war on women, on marginalized groups. We are seeing um, a step back on women's participation in decision-making at different levels. Yet again. Um, Exactly. And uh, even though we've made huge progress as a society uh, in women's uh, you know, participation in parliament, in government, and these women are still there. It just seems like, um, once again, gender agenda uh, is not a priority. And it's hard to convince our uh, officials that it's part of an essential uh, package in a way. Mm. So uh, this is my, my question to you, whether you have any um, you know, lessons learned or things that, that seem so obvious to you that we need to keep in mind as we prepare for this long term and the potential backlash and um, you know, with hopes to rebuild our, our society, gender I'll equal take, at least. I'll take it slightly different because ours, um, the invasion itself in 74, was over in two or three weeks. Mm. Um, Cyprus was considered an economic miracle because within two years, all the displaced people had actually been given homes. But we are living a different kind of conflict, and that's why we call it a frozen conflict, because mm -hmm. there's peace, no one is dying. Okay. Yeah. We highly militarized, we are just over a million island-wide population, and we have six armies. We've got the Turkish Cypriot, Greek Cypriot, Turkish, Greek, British, and UN forces on this little island. We, there's a subliminal violence we have learned to live with. Because mm -hmm. you do have the barbed wires. You do need to go through a checkpoint. You yeah. do have a lot of police around. Um, we still have made headway with including women in the peace process. Wow. Because the conversation here is very much ethnic. Ours is balancing powers between the Greek separate and the Turkish separate population. And that's the only in the only capacity that, that is um, equality spoken about. And when our constitution was drawn up in 60 for independence, the balance within the constitution was not between the power and civil society, it was between Greek separates and Turkish separates. Mm -hmm. In 63, the Turkish separates walked out of government which means there is no checks and balances anymore, which means you've got a, a leadership that does what it wants. It's accountable to no one. Mm -hmm. But we have, we, you, um, we keep on trying, it doesn't stop, but we have no, we are still 45 years after the 74, we are still battling 
for substantive inclusion of women in the peace process. In 2015, with the um, lobbying of the Cyprus Women's Lobby and the Gender Advisory Team, which is an internal ad hoc women's organization, they included a Gender Equality Technical Committee, but a general mm-hmm. Gender Equality Technical Committee that um, had no power because they were a committee that signed a non-discretion non-disclosure agreement, they couldn't speak to the women's CSOs. No one knew what they were doing. So what was their value? Mm -hmm. We then now, in 2021, there was a Security Council resolution signed related to the mandate of UNFICIP in Cyprus that said that by the end of 2021, the two leaders had to come up with an action plan for the inclusion of women in the peace process. Mm. It was launched last week, but again, a group of women, no transparency. They gave us a list of what's included in what they've suggested. We as women have approached for meetings and we've said quite eagerly, when are we going to meet? We need to brainstorm. Oh, we don't know. So we, what we live in, and that's probably the result of the frozen conflict, that especially the Greek separate side, there's a complacency. We appear to be getting there. We appear to have legal equality but we don't people are very comfortable in their areas and they don't i think they've forgotten what it means to have a gender perspective hmm. and they also forgotten this thing about solidarity because we keep on having panels panels without women and men just men Manals. because there are no women experts yeah. yeah so our lesson is don't repeat us <laughs> Wow. Don't repeat what we do. But I think a lot has got to do with the fact that we, it's a long term, it's a frozen conflict. And a lot of it has got to do with the fact that prior to 74, Cyprus was mainly rural. Mm-hmm. By 76, the rural had become urban. So this mm-hmm. change in um, status or culture almost didn't allow people to catch up. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't know the lesson to learn is that you can't, you can't stop doing what you're doing and you can't stop reaching out because I think we are being a little bit more effective now because of the regional networks because the reason that um, clause was put into that resolution is because we as the women mediators across the Commonwealth, the two of us that are separate, were brought into contact with high officials in the UK foreign office. We had two or three discussions about what we thought is not negotiable that needed to go in. And what we requested from them was they um, lobbied and ensured it got in without, they wouldn't agree to the resolution unless this was unless this was included. So there's your benefit, another benefit for the um, the regional network. So I don't know if our lessons do nothing, we need to just carry on. Mm-hmm. And I but also I, think we need yeah. what you said earlier, this question of sharing, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of a lot has happened in Cyprus that there are two, a few people that think they've got the they are entitled to be the voices of women, peace and security. Mm. Yeah. And they get they don't like sharing this. We have to have this bring us all to the same level because you and I have different experiences. You might be better than, no more than me or my, but we all have something to bring to yeah. the discussion and everyone's voice is important. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I like. What, that's why when I read your, um, what you've written on your Facebook page about yeah. it, I like this fact that you were the important part. You were in the center. Voices, mm-hmm. Everyone's voice counts. 
especially those i think it's not just about me in this case but it's like this analysis of uh power in every situation because uh compared to judith butler my voice is on the margins obviously but compared to me there are also other voices that are more on the margins because uh, and it was already acknowledged in this event itself. It was an English speaking space. Um, it was a space uh, brought together in a very hasty way uh, for people who had time to do it on such a short notice. So this excludes also a lot of different voices. The non, there was no interpretation provided. Uh, women who were taking care of children after school couldn't join, for example, or couldn't speak necessarily and uh, or women who don't that, have access to internet exactly or to technology to absolutely yeah uh so it, it was still a very very privileged um event and that's why my remarks for example uh i was focusing on uh, on the aspects of care of and intersectionality of this war and how much women again are taking on themselves uh, the work of caring for uh, the elderly for the children and uh, how we forget uh, about the class and the, the resource aspect uh, of all of this. Um, but it's what's holding us as a society together right now, just as during COVID it was. So when you say that, you know, uh, we don't know how to integrate uh, gender in peace agreements or when the global leaders say that, it's so uh, like, I don't understand. It's so obvious uh, yes. what women are doing and uh, their role and what they're involved in. That's what should be, part of the conversation like exactly. you don't need to think too hard um but if you include that in the conversation you're listing the opportunity for a re-outbreak of conflict because they bring a part of the puzzle of the conflict to the table mm, what do you mean no if you if you don't bring to the table the experiences of the women yeah you bring it to the table to ensure that everyone understands this is what happened this is what this is what was missing. And then that mm. means that the chances of this happening again are less, I think. Oh, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think in, in uh, one of the things that um, I appreciate about the discussion of, of the current uh, war in Ukraine, and I hope this is where the academic community will be uh, helping all of us move forward, is how much uh, the violence of war is connected to anti-gender violence for politicians that uh, introduce an authoritarian regime. Putin's uh, politics for years have been um, repressive towards LGBT uh, people. Uh, for, um, Russia's policy on domestic violence is, is very much non-punitive. Um, uh, yeah, and supportive of, of the perpetrator. And um, the whole idea of advancing uh, the Russian world, as, as he says, Ruski Mir, uh, is uh, to advance and um, the conservative values as opposed to, uh, you know, imagined threat of, of liberal democracy and uh, gay propaganda, as, as he puts it. So we, we can talk about women's rights being uh, one of the key markers of, you know, security threats. Uh, if we talk about alerts and early warning systems and preventions, look for contexts where uh, women's rights are being attacked, um, you know, and, and, and use that as a marker that there may be more violence uh, of different kinds coming to the same region, uh, which of course makes this um, 
a much more global issue. Uh, you know, we look at Poland, we look at um, the US uh, right now, what is going on with reproductive rights, and um, uh, we look at uh, other parts of the world. And that's why we need, I agree, a transnational solidarity uh, because it, it touches on, on, on all of us. And I agree with you. And I think that you made a very important point that everyone's forgetting that link between gender-based violence and conflict. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, very strong link. Absolutely, yeah. Very, very strong link. Um, Oksana, is there anything you want to say before we close? Because I think we've had a really rich discussion. Mm -hmm. I'm very, very, um, I'm really enjoying this discussion. Is there anything you want to say before we finish this discussion? Because there will be room for other discussions. Um. I, uh, for me, if I don't know who will be listening to this um, podcast, um, but um, for me, the work of peace um, as a women's rights activist is so closely connected to the work of, of liberation of women's voices. And uh, security is built on plurality, on plurality of thought and experiences. So. Uh, I want to encourage um, everyone who is listening to really uh, use their voice and to hold on to any opportunity to liberate themselves and to empower themselves, not only for, for yourself, uh, but for the project of democracy and really inclusive security that, that we depend on. Um, um, and I hope that this has been my journey with, with peace activism and um, I hope that this journey continues uh, through our collective work. I agree, I agree with you. The final destination or the continued destination is inclusive, peace building and security. It's got Absolutely. to include all the voices. It's Absolutely. got to be space for all the voices. So um, I thank you very much for this conversation. Um, stay safe, reach out if you need any help Definitely. and also reach out if you need any help in terms of social media because i'm very active on social media as well great okay thank you for okay. so i look forward to meeting you one day in the flesh me too thank you oksana Take care. Bye -bye. you too bye